Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Marine Captain Richard Gannon. Gannon was the company commander for Lima Company 37 Marines, and the time we're going to talk about is in an area known as Husaiba, Iraq, in April of 2004. So the Iraq War kicks off in March 2003, and you really have to look back at this conflict, still look into the conflict, as having a few different phases. And by spring of 2004, we are in a full-fledged insurgency. And I hope over time we come up with better phrases and ways to describe all these things. But it was a challenge right out the gate because while the Iraqi government and military fell, it wasn't clear right afterwards who we were still fighting. So Saddam wasn't captured until December of 2003. So you've got, you know, seven, eight months after, or eight or nine months, I guess, after U.S. forces kicked off or allied forces kicked off the invasion until Saddam was was captured and brought into captivity. Any attacks or violence in that window were very easily attributed to, you know, frustrated ex-Bath Party members. Bath Party was the, the leading organization within Iraq while Saddam was in charge. And they had people throughout political, military, the you know, as close to the private sector as you could get. And one of the first things the United States did was a policy of debathification where anybody who had a um, was tied directly to the Bath Party would maybe even to the degree, I'd have to go back and double check, maybe even to the degree of, of being, you know, quote, registered with the Bath Party as a Bath Party member, remove people from the ability to serve in certain capacities down to like teachers. So there were a lot of people as brutal as Saddam was and his regime was, there were people who did well under Saddam and for any number of reasons were better served under that system than whatever else was going to come. So it's not, you just think military, how many generals moved up through the ranks. They'd put in 20, 30, 40 years being loyal to this regime. You know, that's where they derive their power, where they derive their, their importance within the state. So they don't want to start over with, with something new. It's not crazy, but until Saddam is captured, it's very easy to write off any of these attacks, whether it's you know pot shots as Marines drive by or a, a roadside bomb that kills American soldiers. It's very easy to list those in this category of you know frustrated Bath Party members that are waiting for Saddam to come back. You know they're showing they're they're taking action. So when the U.S. leaves, remember in two thousand three two thousand four, there's. There's nothing, there's no writing on the wall that we're going to be there until 2013, 14, 15. It's 2020. We still have troops there now. I mean, that wasn't known, expected in any way, shape, or form. In fact, before Saddam is is captured, there's a lot of folks, and it wouldn't be crazy to think this, that live within Iraq that say he's going to come back. 
he's going to be in power here shortly. So it's easy for the allied forces to say those little attacks here and there are people trying to show that they're still putting up a fight on behalf of Saddam because they still believe he's going to come back or that the allies, the U.S. and and everybody's going to leave and we're going to have to figure out this new power structure. And I'm going to be one of the ones that, that pushed back against this occupying force. You really have to look at, you know, an eight or nine month window in there falling in that category. But that's not all that was happening. That's just how we were viewing things. What we we, the United States and allies, kind of missed in that window was the ramping up of a more international insurgency. The U.S. forces on the ground in an Arab country gave the opportunity for jihadis around the world to come and fight their jihad. It's not that easy to attack the United States in the United States, but it's pretty darn easy, especially in 2003 and four to make your way to Iraq and and get after it against some infidels that are occupying land in, in uh, occupying Arab land. It made for some ripe targets. And there were a lot of people that were, that were ready to, to do that. It's again, nothing out of the ordinary. There's been, there's a lot of documentation on that for, for a long time. We just, really putting troops on the ground in Iraq gave a lot of people this opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So in 2003 and 2004, we start to see a pretty substantial flow of foreign fighters into Iraq and, and they're deliberately to fight and, and repel the American invaders and occupiers. One of the major ways into the country is going to be through Syria. And it's going to be following the travel corridor along the Euphrates river Valley that flows generally west to east, east to west, um, through Syria down into, now it's going to, it's going to travel through Ramadi, through Fallujah and into, in, in, in and around Baghdad. It's a major travel hub through the Middle East. In 2004, this area in Western Iraq is going to be transferred to Marine control. It's the, the Western province is known as Anbar. It's very heavily Sunni. And with the access point there, a couple access points on the Syrian border and a Sunni um, population, it makes Western Iraq ripe for the transport and buildup of these international jihadi fighters. Most Often we're going to look at it as Al Qaeda in Iraq or the Islamic State, but these groups are 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 heavily or exclusively Sunni, so it's an easier place for them to build up moving through Syria into Anbar, into Ramadi, Fallujah, and into Baghdad. With the Marines moving out there in 2004, we start to see this pickup in what isn't just ex-Bath Party officials getting upset. And we're still a couple years away from major sectarian violence. That's 2006, 2007 window. Right now, we're starting to see this growing international international coalition of, of insurgents, is what we'll call it. But it really kind of tips the scales in March of 2004. So about a year after we've been in Iraq, there's some Blackhawk, Blackhawk, Blackwater contractors, American government contractors 
that are killed, brutally killed in Fallujah and hung from a bridge. And it kicks off a major operation into Fallujah in the early part of, of April 2004. That is known as Operation Vigilant Resolve. And it kind of clicked, I would say, that some of these cities are in insurgent hands. They're not just influenced by the enemy. They're actually run and, and fully occupied by enemies of the United States and the allied nations that are fighting in Iraq. Those groups, for what it's worth, would eventually turn on um, the Iraqi government. At the time, they weren't necessarily fighting the Iraqi government, but there also wasn't much of an Iraqi government to fight. But over time, these groups, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State, many of these Sunni insurgent groups would target deliberately Iraqi security forces. It just wasn't quite there at the time. So the first battle of Fallujah kicks off and Fallujah is just a hotbed of insurgent activity. And something that I think paints the overall picture here as we look at it is we don't know the staying power of the United States. The insurgents don't know that. We don't know their staying power. So these are some of the first major battles against the insurgency in Iraq. As that's kicking off, you know, because the insurgents don't know our staying power, they kick off a couple other little operations around the country to essentially draw us away from this, this battle happening in Fallujah. One of those is going to happen in a town called Husayba. Husayba is not that big, but it's out west near the Syrian border, which means it's right along that travel hub in and out of, in and out of Anbar province. And it's held by about a company's worth of Marines. A hundred or so Marines are out there um, in a couple different outposts in the city. It's an interesting spot because if it wasn't for that travel corridor, it wouldn't be all that important. It's not a huge area, but it is right on this main travel route. So as the the noose is, is tightening around Fallujah, if you will, nearly 600 insurgents converge on Husayba on April 17, 2004. They're going to kick off their attack with a large roadside bombing outside of Husayba. And the idea here is to draw out American forces, Marines, from their base to investigate and start to provide care and, and evacuate the wounded. And once they're lured out of their base, the enemy's going to attack. And they'll catch the Marines out in the open, away from their base, and, and the fight's going to take off from there. That was the design of how it started. It's kind of how it started. But really, early in the morning of April 17th, just all hell breaks loose across the city. The insurgents are raining down pretty substantial mortar fire into American bases. They have the roadside bombing. And before long, every Marine position in the city is, is in contact. Some of those positions are better suited to hold on than others. There are some, like small sniper outposts, that are going to be at risk of being overrun. 600 enemy fighters converge in the city. That's the size they can overrun an American base pretty easily. In turn, Captain Richard Gann and his company, Lima Company, are going to be tagged with reinforcing specifically a sniper outpost that is in danger. Now, something to keep in mind when we're talking about some of this urban fighting, and this will be an urban fight, 100% an urban fight is the challenge of navigating through urban terrain. So 
you'll usually have an overhead map, overhead imagery that you can look down on and maybe plot your route, throw Google Maps out the window. Most of these streets aren't, most of the streets aren't even going to show up on, you know, what we'd consider like a map view, but we can take aerial photography and name the streets as best we can. Now, remember these streets aren't blacktop hardball roads. There's going to be some that are paved and some that aren't and some that are wide enough for a motorcycle, but not wide enough for a car. Others that are great for a car, but not for a Humvee. So it's a challenging terrain to navigate any urban terrain in Iraq is, is difficult to navigate, but also keep in mind the challenge of relaying your position. So you can provide grid coordinates, but that's a, it's really hard if you hear a 10 digit grid coordinate to recognize the guy across the street is in the building on the left, not on the right. And when a lot of these buildings look alike, it becomes really, really hard to maintain control and understand where everything is going. Remember, as soon as a fight kicks off, it's not like you want to stand in the middle of the street and say, hey, first squad, where are you? Come out and show me where you are. I mean, you got to move across that street fast. And you better hope the, the building you're moving into is the one where, you know, say first squad is located. I mean, there's ways to mitigate this where the people that are ahead will, will turn around and find some way to signal you. But it, it, it's a tough fight. There's a lot of things that make it challenging, one of which is making sure you know where to go and when. So Captain Gannon leads his men to alleviate this besieged sniper element. And as they're moving through the streets, they come under fire very quickly. Again, there's 600 enemy fighters scattered across the city. So there's not very many Marines that aren't engaged in heavy contact on April 17th. They get hit with machine gun, RPG, and sniper fire and quickly identify a house that is better referred to as a strong point. And the enemy's infiltrated this building and they've got it built up in a kind of a defensive manner and they're laying down deadly fire into the Marines advancing. So Gannon organizes a assault to take this building, clear it out, so they can continue on to the sniper element they're hoping to relieve. As they kick off the assault, one of the one of his section leaders is hit. Turns out he's he's mortally wounded, and he's he's drug into a nearby courtyard. Again, put yourself in the shoes. You're you're charging down a street with tall, you know, one, two, three story buildings on both sides. You don't know where the enemy's firing from. They're firing from multiple directions, though. Somebody gets hit. And you got to get the wounded out of the line of fire so they can be treated. You don't have the time to look around and evaluate 30 options. You just drag them into a courtyard as fast as you can to get out of that deadly street. That's what the Marines do. They pull them right away into a courtyard to start, start treating him. Captain Gannon gets word that one of his Marines, one of his leaders is wounded and charges ahead. He's going to charge ahead for a couple of reasons, but he wants to push the enemy back far enough to where the position that this wounded Marine is can, can, be secure enough to receive treatment. But he also wants to get up there because one of his guys is hit. He wants to be there for him, right? So he charges forward, pushes into a courtyard, expecting to see the wounded Marine, trying to find the wounded Marine. Instead of finding the wounded Marine, he comes face to face with nine enemy fighters. One against nine. There's a brutal but short fight. And Captain Gannon at the age of 31 is killed killed charging forward to help one of his wounded brothers charging forward to pull a wounded Marine back to safety, charging forward to help a wounded Marine 
as he and his guys are going to alleviate another element at risk of being overrun, selflessly charging him. You know, the number one thing on his mind of how can I help, help my buddy. As the age of, so at the age of 31, Gannon is killed in that short engagement. He will be promoted posthumously to major and awarded the silver star and a camp in the area is renamed and it will stay that way for, for a long time to be known as Camp Gannon. Marine Corps camp in Anbar province, Iraq. So heck of a story. Captain Richard Gannon charging without concern for his own life into enemy fire to pull back a wounded Marine, try to save the lives of one of his, one of his leaders that's wounded and in turn died in the process on April 17th, 2004. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.